Well, turn in your Bibles, please, to uh, John 17. If you're not already there, John 17. We have... uh for the last several weeks, in part because of Christmas, but also now this month of January, departed from our series of studies and acts. That's intentional. I do that every year. Um, because in January, we focus on things that are related to our vision as a church uh, or stewardship. Uh, those are the two the two main themes, and that's that's why we are uh, in John 17 today, because we're focusing and related to uh, the vision of the church. We picked up our now famous dog Nano in a dog pound in Spain. In the midst of a hundred or so dogs, he was skinny and he was kind of shy and timid and all the other dogs got all the food and he just never seemed to get any food and and our heart went out to him and we selected him out of all those dogs. And shortly after we brought him home, we we went to a lake not too far from where we lived in southern Spain and and it was fun watching Nano. It's as if he didn't know quite what to do with this body of water. So he would run up to it, he would look at it, he would sniff, he would put maybe a little bit of his paw in it, then he would run out, and he would run around in circles, and he would come back up to the lake, and he would look as if asking, do I go in, do I not go in? Is this for me, is this not for me? He wasn't sure what to do. You ever feel like that? (laughs) Do you go in, do you not go in? This is the question that faces us as individual Christians, but also churches, with regard to the world. Do we go into the world, or do we not go into the world? How do we relate to the world around us? How do we relate to the culture, to the city in which we live? How do we relate to the world? And churches, you well know, have responded to this question very differently. Here at Las Tierras, we have this tagline, this phrase, the gospel of grace or divine grace for personal and community transformation. And with that tagline, that phrase, we are saying that as a church, we who have received Jesus Christ, we who have been shaped and transformed by the gospel of Jesus, also hear the words of this Jesus who not only saved us, but sends us into the world. So we're a church that responds to this question, do we go in, do we not go in? We say we go in because Jesus sends us into the world. This is his prayer. And so you go, well, why do we do that? Well, this is what he prayed. In John 17, this has been called his high priestly prayer. And this is fascinating because it's as if people, the disciples, were eavesdropping on Jesus' prayer. You ever been praying alone? You think you're praying alone? You know, you're in your room, you're in your closet, you're praying, and your wife is outside the door listening to you. And here's the disciples, they have the privilege of hearing Jesus pray. And he's praying for them. Oh, how that must have encouraged them. All right? And Jesus prays. And one of the things that he prays for his church, his people, is that they would go into the world. 
as he was. Let me ask you this morning as we begin, what is your relationship to the world around you? What is your relationship to those co-workers? What is your relationship to your neighbors? What is your relationship to the city of El Paso, to the border region? To what is? What is your relationship? This is our world in which God is placed. Well, how do you go in? Do you not go in? In Jesus' prayer, we learn three things that I want to touch on this morning. In his prayer, we see there are two communities in conflict, there are two pitfalls to avoid, and there's one mission to enter. All right? So, first of all, two communities in conflict. In verse 6, Jesse didn't read this uh, verse, or maybe actually he did. He says, Jesus says, he's praying to the Father, and he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. And in verse 9, he says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. And what Jesus presupposes is the existence of two distinct communities. There's, on one hand, the community called the world, and on the other hand, people who have been called out of the world and given by the Father to Jesus. All right? So here's this community. Those people given to Jesus, we know as his followers, his disciples, the church. All right, and so... Ever since Abraham, ever since Abraham, we see God doing this, just like God did with Abraham, right? In Genesis, how God took him out of Ur of the Chaldees, took him out of that paganism, and called him to himself. And this is what God has been doing throughout the generations. Now, let's stop for a moment and ask ourselves the question, what does John mean by the term world? And that is a huge theological discussion. Sometimes world is the cosmos, the physical planets, right? The, the universe. Sometimes the world is a bunch of people. But here, all right, here it seems that John is describing world as the created order, all right, especially of human beings and what human beings do. But here's the important point. Human beings and human affairs in rebellion against God. So the world, in John's perspective, we're called out of it. So we're called out of this rebellion, called out of this hostility toward God. And we're placed by the grace of God in what? A different community. And sometimes in the Bible, what what do we see? The kingdom of light, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Satan. So that's what's presupposed in Jesus' prayer. And another thing that's presupposed is that there's a tension between the two communities. Verse 14, Jesus says about the disciples, the world has hated them because they are not of the world. So, Here we are. We've been called out of the world, out of this rebellion, out of this hostility against God. We've been placed in Christ Jesus, and now the world that we were a part of hates us. Alright, that's that's the picture. There's this tension. Alright. Now, and there's this hostility that we often feel. Now, what does Jesus say we ought to do, you and I who live in this tension? of being hated by the world. 
This brings us to our second point. Jesus prays that we ought to avoid two pitfalls. We live in this tension. We're no longer, you know, of the world, no longer in that rebellion. But this is what he says we ought not to do. The first thing in verse 15, Jesus prays to the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. The way to resolve the tension between being one who's been taken out of the world and being hated by the world is not to withdraw from the world. We don't withdraw from where we live. Yet, isn't it true that individuals and churches have done that? Right? When I think about the world or the church withdrawing from the world, from society, from the city, I imagine a fortress. Can I have that slide, please? A fortress. Now, now isn't that a great fortress? I mean, can't, can't you imagine? And some people think of the church like that. Thick, big walls. Why? So that the enemy outside doesn't penetrate, doesn't get inside. It's very hard for the enemy to get inside these walls. And so what happens? Some churches construct thick walls of laws, ethical boundaries, right? You can't do this. You can't do that. You should do this and do this. Why? Because you don't want to be contaminated by the world. So you withdraw. You know, perhaps, that in Jesus' day, there was a group of religious leaders called the Pharisees. And do you know what Pharisee means? The separated ones. The separated ones. Because that's how they responded to their society, sinful societies. No, we're going to separate ourselves. Okay, there's some... There are times we need to separate ourselves. No? But, but this posture of withdrawing, saying, no, 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 I'm not going back there. No. People have done that through that years, right? In the fourth century, the whole hermits, the whole movement of hermits, religious people, they went out into the desert. They all came to El Paso because there's no temptation here in the desert. Right? And then there's that famous example of uh, Simeon, the stylite. It is aesthetic in the 4th century and, and actually in, in uh, Syria, Aleppo, Syria. And he goes up this, this column, this pillar, and for 47 years he's living on top of this pillar because that way the world is not going to get him. And then we have the modern example of the Amish people. Right? We withdraw from the world. And, and the Bowmans who live in, in, in Lancaster, you know, familiar with that. You have your own separate community. No, you don't want to have any kind of modern conveniences because we're separated from the world, from our society. But this is not what Jesus wants of you and me. But you know, my dear friends, it's more subtle than this. Because sometimes we withdraw in very spiritual ways. Let me express it to you like this. Have you ever heard somebody say this? My home is in heaven and I'm just traveling through this world. My home is in heaven, I'm just traveling through this world. Inside that, there's this sense of, you know, I'm in an airport. (laughs) 
Nobody wants to live in an airport. I'm going to my other destination, heaven. And see, with subtle, there's a subtle withdrawal sometimes when we think, I'm just thinking about heaven. I want to get to heaven. I'm so preoccupied and focused on heaven that I don't really care what happens here because there's just a lot of problems here. So Lord, just take me to heaven. Do you ever feel that way? Oh, yes, you do. We all do one time or another. There's a pastor, um, Ralph Caper, who tells a story of a little girl, eight years old, who one day goes to him. This, this eight-year-old girl was part of a vacation Bible school, and she goes to the pastor, and she says, um, Pastor, is it all right if I take my life? I mean, to hear that from an eight-year-old girl is rather startling. He says, why would you want to do that? Well, it's because of what I learned in Bible school this morning. You go, man, what did they teach? <laughs> well, she responded, we were taught that heaven is a really wonderful place where there's no fear, no crying, no fighting. We'll be with Jesus. We, ta- we were taught that when we die, we get to be with Jesus. Did I get that right? Yes, you got that right, but why would you want to take your life? Well, you've been in my home, haven't you, Pastor? You've met my parents. Many times they're drunk. And many times and many days they fight and yell at each other. My brother and I have to get up in the morning. We make our own breakfast. We wear the same clothes, the same dirty clothes to school because they never get washed. And the kids at school make fun of us. And when we come home, we hear them fighting again. And they say things to one another that make us afraid. Wouldn't heaven be better? Do you see? It's in those moments when you feel the tug for holiness on one hand, and you feel the weight of a broken world, and you want to know happiness, that you say, take me to heaven now. Do you want that? But Jesus doesn't pray to the Father to take us out of this broken world. He doesn't do that. He says, Father, don't take them out. And although we'd like to say, could you rearrange your prayer just a little bit for me? I'm a special messed up case and so is my family. I'm a you and I have to ask ourselves a hard question. Have we effectively withdrawn ourselves from our community? Either because of other desires we have or the brokenness or the difficulty. Have you withdrawn from the world? Not in the sense of the rebellion, but in the sense of our city, our society. Jesus says, no. The second thing that Jesus prays that we ought not to do, the second pitfall to avoid, we see in verse 15 as well, the second part, Jesus prays that we should be kept from the evil one. That we should be kept from evil. In other words, we should not be conformed, all right? We've been taken out of the world, out of the rebellion and the hostility, out of our enmity with God, and we're placed in Christ Jesus, all right? And we're in our society, we're in our city, we're in our community, but now he prays that we ought not to be conformed, all right? Not to be like the sin in this world. 
And yet the temptation to be conformed to the sinfulness and the rebellion of the world is very great. And sometimes it's great simply because you don't want to be considered a weirdo. You are a little unusual. But you don't want to seem and appear to be too unusual. So you want to be like other people, like your neighbors, right? You know, you don't want to, you know, come across as standoffish, as superior, as smug. And besides, Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I can go with that. I like to be a friend of sinners. I like to do what sinners do. The problem is, of course, is that when you do, when you hang out with sinful people, with each other, <laughs> right? What happens is sometimes instead of the gospel being proclaimed and leading you, you absorb the sin and you're conformed by the sin of others. And the image that comes to mind is not that of a fortress, but that of a chameleon. So if you can give me the next slide. Can you see the chameleon? Yeah, you can see. I, I, didn't, I didn't want to find a photo that you said, impossible to find. But what is it about a chameleon? A chameleon adapts and blends in to its environment. And sometimes there are Christians and churches that do precisely that. They blend into the surrounding community. There's, it's, it's very difficult to distinguish the Christian from the non-Christian, the church from the non-church. And you know, sadly... Las Tierras is part of the Presbyterian Church in America. We have a cousin denomination. It's called the Presbyterian Church USA that has adopted this chameleon posture. The society around the church has said same-sex marriage is fine, abortion is fine. The church has done the same thing and affirmed same-sex marriage and abortion. That Jesus prays against. Jesus is not on their side. Not at all. No, Jesus prays that we would not be absorbed nor conformed to the evil in the world. But in verse 11, what does he say? In his prayer, he says, Father, keep them, keep us in your name. And what is the name of God? It's the revelation of his character. And what is his character but holy and righteous and true and just and loving and kind? And he's so he's praying, don't be conformed to the world from which you were delivered, but rather be conformed to the character, the holy character of God. That's what his prayer is. This is what we should be doing. So, on the one hand, you can't, we cannot opt out of the world, but we cannot give into the world. We live in this tension, and it's so hard. How do you navigate this? Do you go in? Do you go out? What do you do? And Paul captures this tension that every church, every Christian has to wrestle with. You know, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. When Paul writes in Philippians 1.1, in his greeting, he has his phrase, to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus at or in Philippi. What is he doing? You saints, you're in Christ. That's true. And you are in Philippi. 
That's true as well. Both things are true at the same time. You are in Christ and you are in El Paso. But there are some people who are so eager to be in El Paso and so much a part of this world that they withdraw from Christ. And there are some people who are so eager and zealous to be in Christ that they withdraw from El Paso. No, in Christ and in El Paso. Both need to be true and you live in this tension yes it's hard but you know when we have avoided withdrawing or conformity we still haven't finished everything that Jesus has said because in verse 18 we get to the one mission that we are to enter in verse 18 Jesus prays as you sent me, so explain to the Father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Let me ask you this. When someone hates you, what is your natural response? Oh yeah, you just go up to them and you give them a big hug. No, you don't. No, you don't. You go, you withdraw. You, you said, forget you. And what is marvelously astounding is how God responds to a world in rebellion against Him. How He responds to sinners. How He responds to those who hate Him. He simply doesn't say, forget you, world. Know that He could have done that. He would have been absolutely just. He doesn't just withdraw and just say, you know, I'm just going to stay here in my glory and enjoy my, my deity, right? But what does He do? For God so loved the world. Do you understand what that means? It's in this world of rebellion, hateful, God-haters. God comes and He goes, I love you, though you reject me, yet I love you. And I will go after you. It's a complacent love, as theologians talk about it. And that means it's a love for sinners and, and others and, and, and those that He's going to save. It's a, it's a huge love. But the focus here is that this world that's rebellious doesn't deserve it. He doesn't withdraw. He doesn't remain aloof. But the Son, God the Son, comes. And what does He do? He enters into the world. Incarnation. He takes on humanity. He identifies with human people. He becomes like us in every way except for sin. He knew what it was to go into the world yet not conform to the world. And he did so out of love to rescue a people for himself. You see, so Jesus comes, he's sent by the Father, and he says, yes, Father, I will go. And what does he do? And Luke 4 tells us, he comes to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus comes into the world with word and deed. And that's how he's described in, later on in Luke mighty word and deeds of Jesus. And so we, he says, we who have experienced the grace of God, we who have come to know Jesus, who are now in Jesus, he sends us out into the world. Why? Because this 
is our Father's world. This is our Father's world. He's the King of the world. He's the King of the universe. And He's going to reclaim it in that little garden, the Garden of Eden, that got all messed up for a while, that should have extended over the whole face of the earth. He sends us out. Jesus calls us to partner with Him so that the garden is extended and the glory of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. This is our privilege. Jesus says to us, as the Father has sent me, now I send you into the world. And next week I'm going to continue this. We'll look at John 20, because Jesus repeats this phrase there. But today I want to conclude with one question. What will motivate you and me to go into this broken world? What's going to be that impulse that will really send you out and say, enable you to say, Lord, I'm willing to go. Some of you enjoy a Christianity in which you watch. Some of you are glad for others to serve you. So I'm asking the question, what will it take for you to be one sent into the world, into the city of El Paso, into the community where God has placed you, so that you can serve King Jesus? What's it going to take? You know what it's going to take? It's an encounter with Jesus. If there's no encounter with Jesus, I hope you don't go because you're going to make a super duper mess out of it. And you'll go for the wrong reasons. Do you see this relationship? As the Father has sent me, Jesus comes into the world. Why? Because of a relationship he has with the Father in submission to the Father. Right? And he goes out of love for the Father. And now we, following that pattern, we go in real, because of our relationship with Jesus. As He came into the world, so He sends us into the world. Listen, this is a pattern that we see in Scripture. Let me give you an example. Isaiah chapter 6, a well-known chapter, right? The prophet Isaiah, he goes to the temple to worship God. And he has a vision of the holy, exalted, majestic, righteous God. And he's traumatized. He's traumatized by this vision because it exposes his sin. It exposes his wickedness. You know, as he sees his God who's high and lifted up, and he's frightened because he thinks what? He thinks he's dead. He's going to die. He's going to be killed. He's doomed. And you remember what happens? An angel. One of the angels comes and takes a coal from the altar. What that presupposes... The coal from the altar is that there's a sacrifice. There's a sacrifice that's been burning. And so, and so from that sacrificial offering, an angel takes the coal and touches Isaiah's unclean lips and says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. You see, you see what happens there to Isaiah? 
He has an encounter with God. And in this encounter with God, the reality, he thought he was going to be condemned. He saw his sin, but then he, he experienced the forgiveness of his sin. His guilt is removed. He is healed, we could say. He's healed on the inside. And doesn't that point us to that other altar on Calvary's hill where Jesus was sacrificed and the Spirit takes the work of Jesus and applies it to your lips and to your heart and to your life so that your sin is atoned for because Jesus took upon Himself all your sin so that your guilt is removed? Don't you see that pattern, that connection? But don't miss this. In chapter 6, verse 8 of Isaiah, the prophet hears these words. The voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who shall go for us? And Isaiah says, Oof, this is tough. I'm not too sure about this. Can I think about it for a few days? Can you send my brother? You know, I'm just not equipped, Lord. I really like it, you know, where I am, this prophetic, you know, dugout, warming the bench. But I fear that's where many times I am when we hear the voice that says, Whom shall I send? Who shall go for us? But yet Isaiah's response, Here am I, send me. Do you see the connection? When you have an encounter with the grace and the mercy of God in Christ Jesus, it not only is for you privately, not just to forgive your sin, but to empower you, to change your mind and your heart, your desires, your passions, your longing for the King and the Kingdom. So you say, Here I am, I'm willing to go. See, the grace that saves you, if it presses deep in your soul, will send you. And you'll say, send me, Lord. I want to go. Grace always does that. So here's the question. Have you been transformed by the grace of God in Jesus? Have you had a real, genuine encounter with this Jesus of Nazareth so that you say, Here am I, send me. This week, as you ponder this, would you ask the Lord to make you both available and willing to go and do whatever He wants you to do in this world. Would you be willing to do that? If you say no, see me afterwards. We'll chat. If you say yes, pray. And I know sometimes it's hard, it's scary, and you wonder, I I can't do that. Oh, yes, you can't on one hand. But He can through you. He can through you. Let's pray. Lord, we want to be people who say, here we are, send us. Because how deeply you have loved us and how you've 
poured over our lives, not just a few drips of grace and mercy, but you have been so gracious to uh, place us under this Niagara Falls of your love and your grace to wash us, to refresh us. We don't want to be Christians who stay in our little closet. We want to go out into the world because we want to see your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.